Welcome to Shakespeare and Pal, where we go through the works of Shakespeare in chronological order, as well as his pals, his influences and influences. And this week for episode 21, we're doing something of a mixture. We're returning to Shakespeare's artistic rival and friend Christopher Marlowe. They had a bit of a symbiotic relationship, influencing and influenced Edward II by Christopher Marlowe, 1592. I'm Michael. And I'm Sophie. And Sophie! I'm going, we've already done Christopher Marlowe, but I've entirely forgotten what you said the last time. So what is your relationship to Christopher Marlowe? Um, so Faustus is also Christopher Marlowe, right? Yes. Okay. So for the podcast, um, very early on, we did Tambourine. Uh... Tambourine part one. We still have an opportunity to go back for part two. I hope not. Um, Cause it's, I feel like there's a. I have a beef with Marlowe now, now because um we've read Tamburlaine. It's a about. It's a terrible play about a terrible person. Tamburlaine, terrible play with a couple of scenes that are good, and Faustus, um, which is a mediocre play with a mediocre um main character. Well, I'll say that my my relationship with Christopher Marlowe. Edward II is that yes, I am a. I like Renaissance literature. I read a lot of Renaissance literature. My literary studies honors thesis was on Renaissance literature that wasn't Shakespeare. So I do like this stuff. So with Christopher Marlowe, I have a relationship. I've tried to read his works. I will admit, just like you, Sophie. I do need to push my way through how bland some of it does feel. Even Dr. Faustus find that just a tad... In this show, I do try to find the best in what most people will call the second rate, but it is an effort for me. I will say that for Edward II, I required far less of an effort. This one felt a bit more... It had the spark that we find in a lot of Shakespeare's work. Would you agree with that? Yes and no. Um, yeah, but this is kind of my, it really goes down to my biggest annoyance or criticism of Marlowe's works. And um, now, now that I've noticed it, it's really hard for me to look past it. And um, e listening to it, it, I was fine. But reading it, it just made me like hold my head in my hands and go, why is everyone such an idiot? Why is everyone so stupid? I remember someone saying, history makes a lot more sense when you remember that these were all 19-year-olds who were beaten as children. Ooh, that's a, that's a different, yeah, that is a different way of looking at it. Um, oh, poor babies. But yeah, no. Um, his, yeah, but that's when you look at history, and this is a historical play, when someone looks at, you know, a bullet point, a series of bullet points of facts, which may not even be true, and they put their own lens on it and give their own spin on it. And so, and I don't like Marlowe's spinning. He does not spin a good yarn. 
Spinning on a spit, Sophie. Spinning on a spit. Do you get that, Sophie? Do you get that? I'm referring to the ending, Sophie. Do you get that, Sophie? Yeah. We are trying to keep listeners. We are trying to make this show more and more family-friendly, classroom-friendly. But I have to tell you that this is the play where famously the execution method for Edward II is getting a red-hot poker inserted up the place where the sun don't shine. Yeah, I, I was like, please just be, I, I was kind of hoping that he was just being branded, but no, 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 it was not that, the case. But we'll get to that when we come to that. Mm. I usually have a biography section early on. We've already, however, done Christopher Marlowe's biography in the Town Belaine episode, but because that was way back, way back when we had a third co-host who betrayed us. <laughs> biography it's been a while since we've done the biography of christopher marlowe won't go into it in detail but just so you know the first generation of london Playhouse playwrights included Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe was the first big superstar of that scene. And he and Shakespeare had a friendly rivalry, a friendly back and forth in terms of influence. When it comes to biography, it is quite unfortunate that Shakespeare had such a boring life. We would really prefer that he had Christopher Marlowe's life because Christopher Marlowe, he was a spy. He, that is exciting. Shakespeare was a guy who dodged some taxes. So we really wish that Shakespeare had a bit more of Christopher Marlowe's panache. Christopher Marlowe, famously a spy. I say spy, as I mentioned in the previous Tamburlaine episode. He was the spy in the sense that FBI agents who infiltrate mosques are spies. It's a bit grubby. <laughs> You're looking in on a religious minority in your own country. The Catholics in this case. Oh my god. And Christopher Marlowe quite famously died in a pub brawl. That's genuinely an unfortunate way to go. It sounds like the most one of the more painful ways to go. Especially at that time. On the note on the note of uh, Christopher Marlowe, I'll, I'll probably read out a few of these examples and cut out the ones that aren't relevant. Uh, the thing about Christopher Marlowe is that there are a lot of seditious and uh, exciting quotations attributed to him. The most famous one being, I despise everyone who does not love tobacco and boys. That one is the most famous one. Most of these come from a thing called the Baines Note which was someone accusing him of saying things that could get you locked up in the time period. And there are some rather lovely blasphemous things in this note. I'll read out a few of them for us. So a note containing the opinion of one Christopher Marley concerning his damnable judgment of religion and scorn for God's word. Ah, So he says that the first beginning of religion was only to keep men in awe. That it was an easy matter for Moses, being brought up in all the arts of the Egyptians, to abuse the Jews, being a rude and gross people. That Christ was a bastard, and his mother dishonest. That he was the son of a carpenter, and if the Jews among whom he was born did crucify him, they best knew him and whence he came. 
that if there be any god or any good religion, then it is the papists, because the service of God is performed with more ceremonies, as elevation of the mass, organs, singing, men, shaven crowns, and etc., that all Protestants are hypocritical asses, that if he would have put up a new religion, he would undertake both a more excellent and admirable method, and that all the New Testament is filthily written, that the women of Samaria and her sister were whores, and that Christ knew them dishonestly, that St. John the Evangelist was bedfellow to Christ, and leaned always in his bosom, that he used him as the sinners of Sodom that all they that loved not tobacco and boys were fools, that all the apostles were fishermen and base fellows, neither of wit nor worth, that Paul only had wit, but he was a timorous fellow in bidding men to be subject to magistrates against his conscience, that he had as good a right to coin as the Queen of England, and that he was acquainted with one Poli, a prisoner of Newgate, who hath great skill in mixture of metals, and having learned some things of him, he meant through help of cunning stamp-maker to coin French crowns, pistolets, and English shillings, that if Christ would have instituted the sacrament with more ceremonial reverence, it would have been, it would have been had in more admiration, that it would have been much better being administered in a tobacco pipe, that the angel Gabriel was bored to the Holy Ghost, because he brought the salutation to Mary. So all of these are some quite uh, seditious things to say. <laughs> Lots of... It, so it's, you know, obviously, either Christopher Marlowe was quite ace, quite base, quite, you know, good based sort of guy, or someone was trying to make him look bad. Yeah, all of those were very hot takes. <laughs> that the angel Gabriel was a pimp to the Holy Ghost. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> I did quite like that one too. <laughs> Mike, I cannot, I wish, actually, I do not wish that uh, this was recorded um, in video as well. Cause um, yeah, um, I, I just wanted to say my expression was changing a lot throughout those readings. Uh, and I wish I could express that, but also I do not want to be on video. So yeah, no, all of them were very hot takes and I loved a good number of them, even if they were genuinely mean. <laughs> And some of them a tad bit racist. Oh yeah, just just a tad, just a tad. Act one. Edward the Second has ascended to the throne, and his first act is to fetch his boy toy, Piers Gaveston, back from exile. And who could fault him for shacking up with this low-class, corrupting bow? His nobles, the church, and of course his wife, they have a problem with this. The nobles, and Mortimer Jr. in particular, remember the name, Mortimer Jr. He is quite important to this story. The nobles, Horner, Gaveston and Edward II, and make Edward II exile Gaveston. The long-suffering Queen Isabella knows that Edward will take his rage out on her, so she begs Mortimer and the nobles to un-exile Gaveston. Edward and Gaveston are reunited, and all's right with the world. The end. 
So I think this play is going to have a happy ending, don't you, Sophie? Mm, yeah, so so happy, so so happy. I will note to begin with that my edition has no act breaks; it's just scenes throughout. So I have taken my divisions from some online edition of it. So maybe our versions will not line up. Uh, that is entirely possible. For me, um, my, I mostly studied, with quotation marks heavily implied, the edition available on uh, Audible, uh, Christopher Marlowe's BBC Radio Plays um, compilation, drama collection. Um, and it has, you know, Dido, Tamblaine, part one, part two, Jew of Malta, etc. And it with a second part one and part two. And although I'm surprised that it was separated into part one and part two. Um, and yeah, there were a few pieces missing, probably because it was adapted for a radio play. Because when I went to perseus.tufts.edu, um, for Christopher Marlowe's Edward II, there were at least two characters just straight up missing. Um, and I was like, who are you two? When they first showed up and then I just, yeah. I will admit that even I, who have read the entire thing through in text, if you mentioned those two characters to me, I probably wouldn't recognize them. Yeah, I don't know why. I, why do they exist? I don't know. Um... Are these Spencer and Baldick or something? Yes, that is correct. They are there. Uh, I won't go to spoil something, but Gaveston does die surprisingly early in this play. And it, when Spencer and Baldock are brought into the play, it does feel like when, you know, an author, he says, ah, in this scene of my novel, I need this character. But, oh, no, I killed off that character. Oh, I'll make another character who's exactly like him. Eh, yeah, I guess, but also they, they didn't really, they were strictly unnecessary, I feel, since considering what happens afterwards, but anyway. Let's get into it. I will say that let us begin with what is perhaps the most notable aspect of this play, which is how bluntly gay it is. Just how bluntly Gaveston and Edward II, they are, I mean, it doesn't say it outright directly but you know it's like a silhouette if you look at a silhouette it is obviously a person it doesn't look like a person but you know a silhouette is obviously a person if someone denies that a silhouette looks like a person then they are being willfully obtuse so in this one Gavison and edward ii they are in a gay relationship yeah um i genuinely the first sentence i wrote um under christopher marlowe's edward ii um, act one, scene one, how is this gay only in retrospect? It is so, so queer, so homo. No, no trace of hetero in Gaveston or our Eddie. Like, I don't, I don't understand how, this is very, this play was very much subtext is for cowards. There was yeah. no subtext it is only text i kind of wanted to make a um a sub and dom joke but like dom text made no sense to me so i, I kind of skipped it 
Ah, what blate, what greater bliss can hap to Gaveston than live and be the favourite of a king? Sweet prince, I come. These thy amorous lines might have enforced me to have swum from France, and like Leander gasped upon the sand, so thou wouldst smile and take me in thy arms. So amorous lines, already we have him likening himself to Leander, which, and hero and Leander, famous love story. The sight of London to my exiled eyes is as Elysium to a new-come soul. But that I love the city or the men, but that it harbours him I hold so dear, the king upon whose bosom let me die, and with the world be still at enmity. What need the Arctic people love starlight, to whom the sun shines both by day and night? And so, yes, there are a lot of paths in this, and also his wife. Queen Isabella is jealous of Gaveston, and she does refer to Gaveston as the king's Ganymede. Ganymede, who is the boy toy of Zeus up in the Greek pantheon. So it is this, there is no denying this is gay. I would say that that, the main reason why I think Christopher Marlowe is allowed to make these characters so bluntly gay is because he's not painting it in a good light. This is very much a play where, oh... Oh, the king was led astray by being a bit of a homosexual. Yeah, no, it is. And Edward II is very much historically, even then, known for being a weak king, yes? Yeah, so it, it he is a guy who... It, yes, this is very much a play where, oh, well, if he had a bit more self-control, if he had a few more cold showers, then maybe, maybe he could have put away these uh, his little boy-loving and gotten to be a good king. Yeah, and also um, the whole being punished for his crimes by being sodomized by a hot poker kind of makes it very clear that mm, our Eddie boy was not a good one, <laughs> with quotation marks heavily implied. Who boy? I, I would say that in the that there, there is a way of making this place a tad less homophobic, uh, but only in the sense that we can make Heart of Darkness a bit less racist. Huh? In the sense that it's saying that just like in Heart of Darkness, people say, "Oh, it's not racist," because it's saying that the Europeans are just as bad as the natives. In this one, it's saying the heterosexuals—they're just as bad as the homosexuals. Mm, we'll yeah, get to that yeah. when we get to that yeah we'll get to that when we get to that um i do want to clarify for potential listeners who actually know of the myth but don't fully appreciate um leander and hero's um story um because i was like when i read it slash listened to it first i was like who's leander um and leander is a young man who was in love with a lady called hero and he swam to her tower um like uh, apparently both ways took a, a whole night so it's it's a very long distance and he did that day up night upon night upon night swam through dangerous dark waters just to see hero probably to get laid to and then come home so no one can suspect their their trysts um until he eventually drowns is that correct I, I'm sure that there's some, you know, slight difference in what happens on the night he drowns that makes it oh how tragic, how what what a what a fate spun trick of fate. Uh, but yeah. yes, yeah. So um, just wanted to clarify, it was that myth. Um, and uh, Gaveston was also exiled at the time in France, wasn't he? 
Yes, yes, he was exiled, and now he's coming back. Yeah, so having is, um, you know, a is, body uh, of, of water, yeah. the English channel between himself in France and, you know, Edward II in England is, you know, a nice touch of, of symmetry in terms of, like, you know, personal uh, situation. I will say um, immediately after this um, little poem, um, Annoying Skip 1. Uh, in the radio play, the interaction between Gaveston and the two or three poor men um, does not happen, which really contextualizes um, Gaveston's not goodness, um, which is a little bit missed in the radio play. It is just like, let me, so it is very efficient storytelling. It's Gaveston saying, ah, oh, I've been unexiled. I'm going back to the king. Ah, oh, now here are three poor men so I can prove what an arsehole I am. You're a soldier. I don't like soldiers. I don't like veterans. Go away. You're a liar. I like you. Be my, be my friend. Yeah, it's very much instead of save the cat, it's kick the cat situation. Yes. Um... And, we also yeah. get a bit of a kick the dog, well, not kick the dog, but sort of for Edward II in the very first lines where Gaveston is reading out the king's letter. And he's, the king's letter says, my father is deceased. Come, Gaveston, and share the kingdom with thy dearest friend. So it's like, ah, my father's dead. Thank God I can finally have my boyfriend back. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the audience just generally knew um, that Edward II was, you know, a, a silly idiot boy. Um, and it's like, well, what about Gaveston? Was he someone that was lured into it by the seductive Edward? Or no, 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 Gaveston is very much the seducer. On the note, um, we, we've mentioned how Gaveston is a bad guy, but on what level, what, so, you know, that they have a relationship and clearly Gaveston benefits from their relationship, but... I think it's ambiguous how genuine Gaveston's feelings towards Edward II are. Because some people could say, oh, he's purely going with Edward II just so he can be the king's favourite. Uh -huh. Where, Or you could say that Gaveston does genuinely have lust and love for Edward II. How do you view that? I mean, I think he is very much a person who loves Edward for being Edward, but definitely loves the treasure that comes with it. Um, because uh, after the kicking the cat, kicking the um, veterans, he talks about all the luxuries that he will, he and Edward will be looking forward to. Um, yeah, da 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 that with a touching of a string may draw the pliant king which way I please. So he's aware how much power he has over Edward II. Um, and therefore I'll have Italian masks by night, sweet speeches, comedies, and pleasing shows. And in the day when he shall walk abroad like Sylvian nymphs, my pages shall be clad. My men, like satyrs grazing on the lawns, shall with their goat feet dance on antic hay. Sometime a lovely boy in Diane's shape, with hair that that glides the water, glides the water, or gilds the water as it glides. Right, crownets of pearl about his naked arms, and in his sportful hands an olive tree to hide those parts which men delight to see. And I'm just like, 
sir. Um, you get the sense that perhaps Christopher Marlowe did like the sight of an attractive boy. Yeah, tr attractive boy, um, draped in pearls, um, hiding the naughty bits. It, this is Acteon, or Acteon, genuinely don't know how to pronounce the name, where um, a hunter looks upon Diane slash um, Artemis, the goddess of the moon, and he gets turned into a dog or hind or gets, you know... He gets turned into a deer and then his, his hunting dogs attack him and his own men attack him. Yes, yes, that one. And so he's Christopher Marlowe is having a boy dressed in pearls to be an object of forbidden desire. Like, come on. Subtext? Never heard of her. <laughs> and it's sort of the bluntest dramatic irony where the characters will just... Gaveston is saying this. is like, oh, this has nothing to do with my fate later on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so dumb. <laughs> Oh my God. They have different fashions of reality. Yeah. Um, and I, I do like how, like he, he does, as you say, he does like how much power he has. He says, my knee shall bow to none but to the king. And also that there is one lovely moment where, you know, Edward is saying, you know, stop telling me to get rid of my boy toy. I love him. He, it's not a phase, mom. Get away from me. Where Gaveston says, well done, Ned. Now that is, it's like going up to King Charles III and say, oh, you did a good job there, Chuck. Yep. Yep. It's a, it's, a, it's a way to really just line the nails for your own coffin. Just, it's great. Um, what is everybody's beef with Gaveston, anyway, beyond the obvious? Is because um, he was exiled, but for what? Um, it just... I seemed think, like excessive dislike at that. For starters, he's sort of a bit low class. I'm not sure how low class that actually is, but he's a lower class than a favourite should be. And in the play, at least, the idea is that he's encouraging the king to spend lots and lots of money in a way that isn't useful. And the idea is, I think, that the king could be doing wondrous things like going to war and killing people. But actually, because of Gaveston, he spends all his time in his pleasure dome and stuff like that. Yeah. I, so it's, it's the basic stuff, I guess, because it just feels very excessive just how much they dislike him um and especially because the play hadn't really started he hadn't done the putting pearls on people's um arms and having them waltz around like nymphs and knaves and satires um he's french sure um he's he's lowborn sure that's fine but just the vitriol with which everyone disliked him from the get-go just seemed so strange. And I also I didn't know why. I think it it he does feel a bit like a Richard III character. He he is the person who starts it, he looks at the audience and he starts telling you his thoughts. So I think Richard III came out after this. But I think that, you know, depending on the actor, you could get, oh, this is a this is a wicked guy. This is a Bond villain sort of thing just from the actor saying the lines in the right way. Yeah, I guess. Because, uh, yeah, no, he definitely justifies it later, but, you know, at the very get-go... And he... also, let, let's remember that 
you know, we, we in the Elizabethan era, this is the guy saying, I am having gay sex with the king. So that's already going to turn the audience against this guy. Okay, actually, that is a that's a fair point. That's somehow I missed that. Well, it just flew over my head how very what's the word uh, offensive it yes. was at the time. Uh, yeah, no, that okay, that might explain it. <laughs> um, after that, oh, um, scene one, according to my edition on um, the Perseus website, it ends with um, uh, Gaveston. Uh, being gifted a bishop by Edward II and the bishop was like, dude, I, we shouldn't unexile this man. It was my job to exile him and we exiled him on good grounds. We should, I, I, you can't tell me to take back my word since I was doing a good job. And Edward II is like, eh, Gavi, take him. He's yours now. And Gavi's like, cool, uh, his lands are mine, his robes, I will tear off him right now, and he's going to the tower. And that's how scene one ends in my edition. It's how it ends in my edition. I, I used the Perseus as the source for my app breaks as well, so that, that's, a good, that's a good thing. Oh, yay! But let us... There's another... We've been talking mainly about Gaviston because, you know, this is the... The gay element of this play, that is perhaps the, the most uh, <laughs> attractive part of this. It's what, in the Derek Jarman BBC movie version of it, he very much made this an allegory for the gay rights movement in the 1980s of Britain. Mm. Um, but in this one, in this one, uh, there is also the other theme, which is the war or the brewing civil war between the nobles and uh, Edward II. And it's very much a war between Edward II saying, I am the king. I get to do what I like. My authority is overall. Uh, I don't need to listen to any of you people. Whereas the nobles are saying, no, no, we are the nobles. You need to respect us. You need to listen to us. We tell you to get rid of this guy. Get rid of this guy. And actually, there's a very good pun. There's a very good pun, Sophie, that underlies the conflict. Because, you know, Gaveston, his first name is Piers. And the nobles are, so Piers, P-I-E-R-S. So Piers Gaveston. The nobles are the king's peers, P-E-E-R-S. So it's a choice between Edward II's peers or his peers. I... I'm so tired. <laughs> that's yeah. No, that's a that's a good pun. That's that's a good pun. <laughs> but yeah. So the the king basically says, "Look, I don't need to listen to what any of you say." But the and obviously all of the people in the court, the the nobles, they think we have. You should listen to us. You should. I think they say at one point. Let me find it. Uh, so if you love us, my lord, hate Gaveston. And then someone, then, but Edward says, I cannot brook these haughty menaces. Am I a king and must be overruled? So he said, no, what I say goes. With this play, I think that one of the main themes is that, as in a lot of these plays about, you know, changes of regime, it's that, yes, we can accept there is a bad king. We can accept that Edward is doing 
bad in his job. But it's, again, that sort of conservative impulse that it doesn't matter how bad the king is. Trying to replace him can only lead to other bad things. And trying to push back against him even can only lead to bad things because at least in this in this first act and throughout the thing we have all of these characters saying let's push back a little let's push back a little but even as they're talking about it they can barely contain themselves from going towards violence and then in later acts when they start actively going towards violence killing gaveston ambushing the king they say okay yes we're going to use violence against the king but we're not going to we're not going to use violence against the king himself no and yet okay well now now of course we're going to use violence against the king himself we're not going to kill the king oh yes we've we've uh, well now now we are going to kill the king it is about how it's like how you can sleepwalk into doing the worst crime imaginable, killing a king, when all you did was start out by saying, we're going to resist the king just a tiny bit. I mean, like, I agree on the escalation in the level of violence applied physically, um, except I just think everyone is dumb. Um, so it, it feels both inevitable because, yeah, no, they keep doing the same things and they keep escalating by not doing what the other wants. So they keep raising the stakes. And in order to meet the raised stakes, you kind of have to go into violence. Um, and, but it, I don't see it as sleepwalking into doing more and more violent things because they are vehemently, not strictly speaking violently, but vehement in their objection to Gaveston and um, to Edward II just being a little suki soppity sop. Because um, they don't even pretend to um, welcome him a little bit in the hopes of, you know, carroting the the king into being a better king. They just bring out the stick all, like every time they have a conflict. Um, yes, they are quite, they are, like in Shakespeare, I think there'd be a bit more subtlety in how they voice their their violent desires towards the king. In this one, we have Mortimer say, so like Warwick says, bridle thy anger, gentle Mortimer. And Mortimer says, I cannot, nor I will not. I must speak. Cousin, our hands, I hope, shall fence our heads and strike off his that makes you threaten us. Come, uncle, let us leave the brain-sick king and henceforth parley with our naked swords. So that is, this is in front of the king. The king is in the room and he's saying that we're going to kill your favourite. And if you don't listen to us, we are going to continue our negotiations with swords. And um, they don't even, yeah, no, that is exactly what happens. And um, they... And also, it's probably because Eddie is a silly boy that gives um, Gaveston a butt-ton of honours immediately when he returns. Um, he's like, you can have the office of the Chamberlain, you can have um, something else, and you can have something else. Like, um, I can't find the text on my screen right now, but it doesn't change the fact that everyone goes, dude, that's a lot of honours even for someone of better standing or better blood than Gaveston. And it, it is like, eh, no. Uh, he says, 
I, uh, brother, welcome home, my friend. Now let the treacherous Mortimus conspire in that high-minded Earl of Lancaster. I have my wish, in that I joy thy sight, and sooner shall the sea o'erwhelm my land than bear the ship that shall transport thee hence. I here create thee, Lord High Chamberlain, Chief Secretary to the State, and me, Earl of Cornwall, King and Lord of Man. And Gaveston says, my lord, these titles far exceed my worth. And the king's brother, Kent, says, Brother, the least of these may well suffice for one of greater birth than Gaveston. Yeah, and so um, I get that the nobles are alarmed by this, um, but immediately they're like, okay, okay, this is a bit of a spoiler into Act 2, but they go, okay, we're going to band together and we're going to sign a big piece of paper so we can lawfully re-exile Gaveston. Um, and it's such a dumb move. Um, I, was think, I think we should specify that what happens at the end of this is that in scene four, I think, Edward does cave to them. I forget exactly how he caves, but they, they push back on him and say, exile him, exile him, and they do exile him. And then Edward... Essentially, he goes to the Queen and says, Oh, I, you, you hate my Gaveston. You've always hated my Gaveston. I know you, woman. You're shacking up with Mortimer. So Mortimer's going to be an important character. And, and the Queen goes to Mortimer and says, Oh, he'll blame it on me. And I, I know he doesn't love me, but I want my beloved to be happy. Maybe I'm editorialising there. But she gets Mortimer to convince the other nobles to bring Gaveston back. And Mortimer's yeah. argument is that, well, look, if Gaveston is in Ireland, if he's exiled in Ireland, he'll probably use his money to get some friends and he can maybe have an army of people come back to England. Whereas, if Gaveston is in the English court, then we can keep an eye on him. And also, because he's such an arsehole, someone will probably try to kill him. And that will solve our problems. What Mortimer doesn't realise is that he is that all the nobles hate Gaveston so much that they will be the ones who try to kill him just in the next act. Yes. Um, and for Act 1, Scene 4, I specifically, my first sentence is, is it just me that feels like there's an almost mean girls, teenage catfight, squabbling geese vibes in the scene, especially? Um when cause... men do it, Sophie, it's called politics. When girls do it, it's called catfighting. Oh, double standards. And, um, yeah, my observation of Edward II specifically in this is that he's just so, so weak. Um, even without Gaveston, he would not make a good king. Um, like he immediately tries to bribe the others with positions of power. And um, why does this not occur to him to do it earlier? You know, when he's like, okay, everyone's gotten together. We signed a paper and we're getting rid of Gaveston. And Edward's the second like, wait, no, 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 don't do that. Um, I will give you and you and you better, better jobs with more money. So don't, don't do that to me, please. Um, when, like, instead of, by bargaining, he is already putting himself in a weak position. Uh, and he's a childish man. Um, he's like, mm, it, the 
I'm, they made me do this and I'm going to be sad about it, but I'm, I, and sorry, Gaveston, they made me do it. And I, I, I'm going to get them later. I'm going to get them later so hard. Uh... Act two. Almost immediately, the peace shatters. Mortimer predicted someone would try to kill Gaveston in the court, and it turns out it was Mortimer himself. Civil war brews between nobles and the king, and then civil war breaks out. But the king thinks he should focus on getting Gaveston married to his the king's niece. The nobles would never dare interrupt a wedding, of course, would they? The nobles, along with Kent, attack the wedding. Gaveston and the king split up and hide, but the queen rats out Gaveston. Gaveston is cornered and killed. Were you surprised by how, you know, if this begins with Gaveston, Gaveston is the main part of this play, it's why everyone cares about this play? Oh, Gaveston's killed in the second act. I mean... Yes and no. Uh, wait, is Gaston killed in the second act? I thought he was killed in the third. Maybe he's captured in the second act, and then in the third act he's officially executed. Oh no, never mind. Um, act two, scene six. Um, Gavi is immediately murdered, and Act three, scene one is a very long boy. And yeah, and there's only one act scene in Act three. Um. Yes. So, you are correct. Uh, Gavi immediately dies in the end of Act 2 of Act of a five-act thing. Um, so, in Act 2, um, scene 1, we have um, Spencer and Baldick having an exchange. In scene 2, um, there's an argument. Uh, I think it's about, yeah, no, it's about uh, specifically Mortimer's uh, cousin or uncle being. Uh, I think it's his uh, father, Mortimer Senior, getting ransomed by the Scots. Oh, okay. Um, and then in scene three, uh, the brother Kent, the Edmund Edward, has a brother whose name is Edmund, I believe. Um, in the internet text, he's referred to as Kent. Uh, he goes turncoat, scene four, uh, da, 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 da. there's a bit of a war happening, Isab Isabella um, is left for dead, not necessarily left for dead, but just generally snubbed by our Eddie again, scene five, um, an active and overt condemnation of homosexuality slash Gaveston. Uh, Gaveston captured in scene six, he is killed. And that is act two. Did I miss anything? This is, in the first act, we have a bit of a, a boil, oh, civil war. This is, this is slowly going to evolve into a, no, 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 it happens. It immediately happens. The thing is, though, it felt really slow. It, I feel like it should have almost happened immediately. It's so bizarre. Um, and I think it's 
kind of got to do with Christopher Marlowe's writing style. Um, Because, okay, I'll probably date the podcast by claiming that it feels very smooth-brained. No ridges or lumps, no valleys or bumps, all ideas slide right off. Um, In that, all the characters are on their predestined tracks, and there's no way they will even look at being tempted off their fated path to doom. and it just hurts me deeply because, um, like, my main concern or annoyance with Tamburlaine was that there was no conflict in the sense that um, Tamboy did as he pleased. Um, he barreled into victory like a bowling ball against pins. There was no friction. It just it just kept happening again and again and again. Um, and after a while, it's very boring. I will say that when, as you say, you know, maybe a bit smooth-brained, I will say smooth-brained in the sense that a lot of myths and fairy tales are, where you need to not analyse these characters as psychologically accurate entities. You need to approach the story on a more, these characters are pieces in a... In a stylistic, in a impressionistic tapestry, and they—you need to take the work as a whole, with the characters being representations of certain ideas, that sort of thing. Where, yeah, so I'd say that yes, the characters are a bit simple, but I don't think the play itself is simple. Because, like, for me, um, but I don't. I guess this is where Shakespeare does very well. Um, he has characters debate their choices. Um, he, you know, um, so in Comedy of Errors, uh, you have the wifey being very sad about her husband not coming back for dinner, and the sister is like, oh, well, you are being a bit of a sook, aren't you? And then that's the very same um, sister turning to her not actually her husband, but her his twin, going, look, you're like you're not making if you married my sister for money, then really you should be doing a lot more. Or else she might divorce you. Or at the very least, she is going to keep crying. And that's not going to be good for your for both of our men- mental health, is it? Um and no characters do that here. Um like uh, there is They do not bring up the possibility even to push it away. Yeah, like you don't have um you don't have um Mortimer being potentially just a little bit more subtle. Okay, he kind of does um in convincing his mates to bring back Gas um I was about to say Gaston um Gaveston um back from re-exile. He's like, oh, you know, he's going to get killed by someone anyway. It's, it shouldn't be a big deal to bring him back, especially, you know, to make things easier between the king and Isabel. Like, that's a really good, um, I won't go so far as say compromise, but it's a good idea. It's a good scheme. It gets things done instead of gathering around a piece of paper and signing it with everyone's names and going, hey, King, this is us telling you to get rid of your boy tie. Um, it's the bluntest weapon 
they go immediately for the bluntest weapon. And I just think that as people who govern and who are dealing with a childish governor that is in theory ordained by God to govern them, they are not using the best tools for that. They just go straight for the hammer instead of the scalpel. Um, and I just don't think that it's a good idea, especially, especially later. Um, in scene, I think, Act 2, Scene 2, um, his cousin is ransomed, and he immediately goes, I'll go to the king. He'll pay for it, as if he hasn't been antagonizing the king for the last one and a half I will say that uh, in, the, in, in Shakespeare, they were def all the characters would definitely go through and explain bit by bit their motivations and their... And exactly everything that's at stake. Perhaps I'm giving Christopher Marlowe too much credit, but perhaps he is doing a bit of showing and not telling. Uh, because, you know, as you say, that, you know, they've been telling the king, they've been barely hiding their criticism of the king. They have put the king in a bad mood. They're saying, you do this for us, you do this for us. And then Mortimer's father is taken prisoner. Ah, now, this should occur to them that right now, they have the king has a bargaining chip now they need money for his father so surely they should be groveling before the king or backing off on the king but no we are shown that these characters are so dead set on being against this king that they will not compromise there is nothing that will make them compromise they will either and so Ah, so nay, nay, so Mortimer says, nay, stay, my lord, I come to bring you news. Mine uncle, ah, so it's not Mortimer's father, it's his uncle. Mine uncle's taken prisoner by the Scots, and Edwin says, then ransom him. And Lancaster says, twas in your wars, you should ransom him. So Lancaster tries to go for like a moral argument. He's trying to say, look, regardless of what we've been saying, sir, you are a king, do as you, don't make, just, just ransom him. But Mortimer says, you shall ransom him or else. So, and Kent does point out that this is a threat. He says, what, Mortimer, you will not threaten him. So we do get the sense that this is showing us that already this compromise, this petition to the king, this is just, everyone wants to attack the king. They are getting ready for a civil war. I feel that it's a bit more, the play has a bit more subtlety than you're giving it credit for. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe. Um, it's, I guess it's very much a difference between reading and listening, because I wasn't nearly as frustrated with the characters and their idiocy and their lack of tact at every stage of this play when I was listening to it, because, um, yeah, everyone is dumb, but humans are dumb. Um, so yes, and so like I, I would say that if any listeners, if we had any listeners, if any listeners uh, are you know saying to Sophie, oh well, you know, in history things do happen, and so you know he can't go against history. When it comes to historical fiction, the challenge is to depict the events of history in such a way that those events of history seem like they would happen, and yeah. that is the challenge. Hmm. Because you're right, there is more subtlety than I have so far given it credit for, at least in terms of 
you know, the scalpel, the the subtle warnings. Um, in at the beginning of scene two, the uh, Mortimer and Lancaster, I think, they talk about um, their crests and a lofty cedar tree fair flourishing on whose top branches kingly eagles perch and by the bark a canker creeps me up and gets unto the highest bough of all, the motto, A.K. Tandem, which I think um, eventually equal um, in Latin or something like that. And, oh, yeah. yeah, and then um, the other one, Lancaster, has um, a fish that swims so fast away from the enemies trying to eat it that it flies up into the sky because it's a flying fish. Um, and that's where it get becomes endangered of being eaten by birds. Um, and the motto is Undike Mors Est, um, which I believe means, um, or at least according to the internet text that I clicked the link on, means death surrounds all. Death is all around. And um, that is a you know, that's a subtle weapon to go, hey, um, Mortimer might be going, I'm about to climb up to your level. And uh, Lancaster is warning the king going, hey, there are enemies all around you. You probably should be a little more careful about your I, conduct. I would also say that there's the subtle point. So like in the plays text, so what they're doing is sort of subtle, not very subtle. But in the play text, the subtle point that Christopher Marlowe is being subtle with is that they are, Mortimer and Lancaster, they are being as subtle as a gangster movie godfather. They are saying, oh, well, you wouldn't want something to happen to Gaveston. It's, it is just the, it is the amount of plausible deniability, but where no one is fooled by this. They are perfectly willing to say this as directly to the king as they like. They are barely hiding this. So this, in any other circumstance, them being this blunt to the king, this should be like treason. This is too far. But they feel emboldened to do this, and this sort of foreshadows their later actions towards him, that they are feel emboldened to do this to the king. Yeah. And, um, and even then... Um... Eddie the second is like, don't you threaten my Gaveston? And I'm just going, I swear they're threatening you, boy. They're threatening you. <laughs> they're trying to warn you and your conduct, not Gaveston's. What are you talking about? Maybe, maybe even if, even if Edward dies, maybe he just wants Gaveston to live. Ah, like... And he's what. What's really annoying to me is that that um, Edward the Second goes. I, you know, I I could give up being king for to live my life with Gaveston, and I'm just going seriously consider it, boy. Do it. Like think about it out loud, so you know the people around you can be like, mm, no, that's a bad move. That makes you an I even. I think he work. does. I think he does say it out loud to them in the first act. He says, the go on, you bastards, carve up England into kingdoms amongst yourself, but give me some little nook where I can be with my boy toy. And, um, but he doesn't, mm, that just sounds so, the way he did it, at least the way I interpreted Eddie doing it, was that he was like, well, go on then, that's, 
you, I know you can't do it, and that's why I'm saying it. You know, it's not very. It's not a hey. I I would do it if I was allowed to. It felt more like oh, go on. Then it's not as if you can do it. You know, it was very much a a goad instead of an actual offer. And um, I feel like it would have been nicer, better if it was an actual offer, because you know. But then, then these two potentially could have been happy instead of dead in a ditch or being sodomized. Once more, Sophie, we have uh, you failed on your last three fan fiction assignments, but this one, Sophie, this one. <laughs> I'm sure that by the time this episode comes out, there'll be Christopher Marlowe, Edward II, brackets five. Um, so act two, scene four, when there's the war is happening, um, they've been, uh, I don't know, sieged, and everyone's running away. Um, I, okay, now, before I go into this particular scene, do you, what do you think of the niece? She I, my, my main point about the niece, well, yes, yeah, she is... The reason why the king wants the king wants Gaveston to marry the niece because that will let Gaveston be closer to him. That will give Gaveston more power, more reason to be closer to the king. When it comes to the niece, she does seem to love Gaveston. She says, so the niece is speaking to herself. She's holding the letter and a letter from Gaveston. The grief for his exile was not so much as is the joy of his returning home. This letter came from my sweet Gaveston. What needst thou love thus to excuse thyself? I know thou couldst not come and visit me. She reads, I will not be long from thee, though I die. This argues the entire love of my lord. When I forsake thee, death sees on my heart. But rest thee here, where Gaveston shall sleep. She places the letter in her bosom. Now to the letter from my lord the king, she reads from another letter. He wills me to repair unto the court and meet my Gaveston. Why do I stay, seeing that he talks thus of my marriage day? I wonder, does that, so she genuinely loves Gaveston, it seems clear. I wonder whether she knows that Gaveston is in a gay relationship with the king, but I wonder what this says about Gaveston's relationship with her. Is Gaveston like a bi, a bisexual, a disaster bi? Uh, is that what he is? Where he's he's with the niece and he's with the king? I mean, it's entirely possible. Maybe the niece just loved him from afar because he's a hot man. Um, I don't with a know. Sexy French accent. Yeah, with a sexy French accent. There's a why did she not show up in Act One? Because then uh, she had. The king would have been like, hey, let's keep... The king could have used her and been a little smarter about keeping Gaveston around. Like, mm, every everyone's dumb. Everyone is stupid. I would say way. that from the purpose of, you know, as in a lot of, you know, that, that common response to people saying, why didn't they do this intelligent thing? And the idea is, well, there wouldn't be a plot otherwise. So I feel that even if you had that intelligent... If you... For the first act, you want to get rid of any intelligent tactic that could have any intelligent tactic that could have diffused the climactic tension of that act. But is this that if you know, what if they had gotten married and um and the queen is like, hey, you you gotta know something, girl, and uh, she goes, no, that's a lie. My my Gaveston loves me. And in a later part of the play, um, they're doing the dirty and like she witnesses it. 
or maybe later she realizes just generally that oh no my Gaveston doesn't love me and Isabel's like I told you so um why do you think I'm with Mortimer Mortimer's the only one that's been kind to me um and like it's just a slow poisoning you know like it's just uh, there's a lot about this the play that just fiction Sophie is getting nice and thick. You have no excuses this time. No, don't make. But anyway, um, and like so, yeah. Again, um, idiocy, stupidity, idi, dumb boy. Um, there, all these people are running away from enemy forces. Um, Edward, farewell, sweet Gaveston, and farewell, niece. And the queen's like, no farewell to poor Isabel, thy queen, Edward. Yes, yes, for Mortimer, your lover's sake. Has she, is she, you know, the, the king, this might be projection on his part, saying, you, my queen, you're having an affair with Mortimer. And this does seem to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, where he says, you're having an affair with Mortimer, you're having an affair with Mortimer, and eventually she says, well, I may as well have an affair with Mortimer. Yes, it's a self, yeah, no, self-fulfilling prophecy. And she was clearly, like, not necessarily okay with emotionally, but she was still willing, prag like pragmatically, to help with the affair by convincing other people to de-exile um, the French boy. Um, and the queen says, heavens can witness, I love none but you. From my embracement, thus he breaks away all that mine. Where is this accent coming from? Your French very quickly became a Scottish. It did, it did. Well, they did have, um, I wonder if that's where, anyway. Um, oh, that mine arms could close this um, aisle about, that I might pull him to me where I would, or that these tears that drizzle from mine eyes had power to mollify his stony heart, that when I had him, we might never part, and then enter the barons. And um, it's like, oh, Mortimer shows up and goes, oh, queen, hi, you. And she replies, I, Mortimer, the miserable queen, whose pining heart, her inward sighs, have blasted, and body with continual mourning wasted, and body and, uh, and body with continual mourning wasted, these hands are tired with hailing of my lord from Gaveston, from wicked Gaveston, and all in vain, for when I speak him fear, he turns away and smiles upon his minion, as... Yeah, no wonder she betrayed him. Just come on, man. Do do it smarter. Cheat smarter. Is that advice you're taking, Sophie? Probably. You're too you're you're too disorganized to have an affair. I I cannot stress enough how disorganized I am. Uh, if I tried, I'd probably be caught before I started. And that's called emotional cheating, guys. And that's not okay either. Anyway. On that um, note, let's, let's end the discussion. And then, yeah, act two, scene five, scene six, um, Gaveston is, is straight up murdered. End, end of act two. Act three. Edward II learns that Gaveston is dead. Spencer, remember Spencer? No, you don't. Spencer, well, he's the new favourite, whispering in Edward II's ear to kill the revolting nobles. 
warlike Edward refuses the nobles' demands. Edward and the nobles battle. Edward's on the back foot at first, but eventually he triumphs. His victory is not assured. The queen makes off for her brother, the king of France, hoping to get the king of France to attack Edward. Did I miss anything? Uh, no. I mean, act three is literally one scene, so it's kind of hard to miss. In my edition, they split it up into three separate scenes. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, what I don't understand about it is, so, um, Spencer and Baldick is definitely not present in the radio play. And I find that fascinating, mostly because I can believe um, Edward changing for the more bloody-minded, tyrannous, um, you killed my boy and therefore I will kill you all, um, kind Look of. Look at how they've massacred my boy. <laughs> Damn it. Um, so yeah, um, I can just see him just turning bloody-minded because of that, out of pure revenge. I don't it's see... Like, it is like, in a set, like, you know, in this time period, the precursor to Elizabethan stage drama are those kinds of morality plays, where you have a guy called Everyman, and outside of his head is some guy called Greed, and this guy called Greed is saying, you know, Everyman, you should be a bit more greedy. So that sort of thing. And that sort of characterization carried over a bit into Elizabethan drama and theoretically realist drama. So you can you can sort of view certain characters as being embodiments of a character's internal temptations. You know, like we could say that in Othello, Iago is, yes, he's a person, but he's also an embodiment of Othello's internal jealousy. In this one, it we could be seeing Gaveston could be the king's internal drive for luxury and idleness. And after Gaveston is killed, then we have Spencer being the internal drive for violence and uh, unrestrained revenge. If we view this as being a sort of not a kind of a uh, bit of an allegorical sort of play, in a sense. Hmm. I guess that's where my, you know, my modern sensibilities uh, make me go, I don't like allegory. <laughs> um, I would like each person, each character to be their own person that has their own motivations um, that do, you know, interweave with the central theme of the play or um, any work that is being enjoyed, but, you know, still... I like the idea of you uh, you reading, as a child, reading Red Riding Hood and saying, but what was the wolf's point of view? <laughs> wolf was hungry. Um, anyway, um, how... So in Act 3, the sun shows up? Or at least is, is referenced for the first time. And um, I have to ask, uh, how long does this play take? Um, does yes, it... it does feel like one of the things where maybe the reason why 
Prince Edward was never mentioned is because actually this play has happened over the course of 20 years or something like that. Yeah, because, um, uh, and I just, yeah, and he's technically speaking, he goes, oh no, don't put the weight of Atlas onto my shoulders. I can take it, but it's, I'm still young. And I'm just going, how young are you? Are you, are you a, a lispy six-year-old? Are you 14? What is going on here? Um, have you had to bear witness to your dad being a hardcore simp to a French peasant for months or years? Um, and just an absolute, also an absolute turd to your mom. Like, what's, what's your deal? <laughs> um, although, uh, yeah, I just, that's a, that's a poor, that's a thing that detail that I don't really like of this play. I'm just going, well, what's the precise time frame of this um i will say Don't though the small stuff yeah <laughs> i will say though the line unnatural about unnatural wars um considering you know wars but of people it's a civil war is un, is an unnatural war and um i was like oh is it unnatural also because it is born of unnatural desires perhaps mm? Mm? Mm -hmm. and the unnatural movement of people against their rightful king yes so much unnatural things happening witchy witch times but yeah that's that's really do you have anything in particular that we about. This, yes, this I don't have that many notes about this. I do. I would say that it does continue the. This is a, a, a in the first act discussion. I was saying how the play is about how an initially somewhat reasonable pushing back on the king becomes quite quickly regicide. It it, it begins. It is about the absurdity of saying that, oh, of starting with violence in your heart as you're pushing against the king and saying, oh, no, we can choose where we stop this. No, you can't. If you start to push back against the king with violence in your heart, this will inevitably lead to you killing the king. So, that, uh, so Mortimer says, look, Lancaster, yonder is Edward among his flatteries. And Lancaster says, and there let him be till he pay dearly for their company. So no one at yet is saying, let's kill the king. They're, at, they're probably thinking that they're just going to kill the flatterers and imprison the king. But they think they are in control of the, the rampaging beast of revolution. No, they aren't. They are eventually going to be the people who kill this king. Uh, you, you objected to my word of sleepwalking. I will say that it's like, it is a bit like sleepwalking. They know they're going to be violent. They don't know just how violent they're going to be. Yeah, no, okay. If you put it that way, I can agree. Because um, uh, especially with the very final atrocity in mind, because I don't think anyone in that group is going to go, oh, yeah, we're going to do the one that one final awful thing because it's the I, right I think explicitly the guy who does a guy called Lightborn which you know ah I, I won't say Lucifer but you know Lightborn wink 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 I'm a very mm. good writer Mr Shakespeare mm. 
But yeah. uh, Lightborn, where Mortimer says, I want you to kill the king. How are you going to kill the king? And Lightborn says, oh, you know, trade secrets and all that, eh, eh? It's like, okay, I don't care. Just kill him. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't actually specifically say kill him in that specific way. Um, but yeah, so um, I, I feel like they, as characters, if they had a psychology, they are kidding themselves into thinking, oh, no, we're not going to do, we're not going to go that far, but we are going to go pretty far for the country for ourselves for the king the king doesn't know that we're doing it for him yet but he will know it's for him and we do get a, a statement of you know the theme of the player a rather nice statement where warwick says a desperate and unnatural resolution alarum to the fight saint george for england and the barons right and edward says saint george for england and king edward's right they are stating that this is about you no. Know, do the does the king have absolute right, or do the barons have a bit of right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think one of the things about you know the, the king is that Gaveston so warps his view of the world. Uh, he is unable to think about anything other than Gaveston. That is perhaps why he doesn't think of any of the solutions to the problems, because he has only eyes for Gaveston. In the previous act, there was a part where someone said to the king, the king of France is complaining that we're not paying him homage enough. We're not giving him the money he needs. Uh, you know, you, king, you should talk to the king of France. And, and Edward says, I don't care about that. Where's Where's Gaveston? I want to talk to, Ga to Gaveston. So this is a quite important political issue, but he says, I want to be with my boyfriend right now. And in this act, we have... Uh, so Edward says, Madame, what news? And the Queen says, News of dishonour, Lord, and discontent. Our friend Levunaid, faithful and full of trust, informeth us by letters and by words that Lord Valois, our brother, King of France, because your Highness hath been slack in homage, hath seized Normandy into his hands. Thee be his letters, this the messenger. And Edward says, Welcome, Levune, tush, sib. If this be all, Valois and I will be friends again. But to my Gaveston, shall I never see, never behold thee now? So he's based, so the Queen has just said, this is some quite important geopolitical news. Uh, the King of France has taken back Normandy. But Edward says, I don't care about this, sib. Tell me about my boyfriend. What's my boyfriend like? He, and then, you know, and, you know, part of another problem is that the, the king walks in to his own ambush where the nobles attack him. He walks into that by saying that, oh, yes, I know that the nobles are trying to attack me and trying to defeat me, but I'm going to get my boyfriend's wedding done right now. He, his problems come from the fact that he... You know, as as I said uh, before, talking about the allegorical reading, perhaps of this is that Gaveston maybe represents the drive towards luxury and idleness. Because of Gaveston, the king is literally unable to think about important politics. He is purely thinking about his boyfriend. He's purely thinking about his personal pleasure, and that is what leads to all of the problems in his life. That he cannot seriously think about politics as a king should. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Because, um, you know, the first scene alone um, where Gaston is going, oh, these are all the things I'm going to do once I'm in bed with Eddie, my boyfriend, the king. Um, it's super luxurious and very wasteful, especially he was going like, I'm going to dress up my knights who are militant 
in, uh, you know, who, who is part of the military branch of government, um, into, I'm going to dress them up as goats, as half goats in my gardens, and they're going to feed us grapes, uh, which is definitely not That's how you... one use know. of a standing army in peacetime. Yeah, if they were in peacetime when they're clearly Wouldn't you love it if we got the Australian army or the Japanese self-defence force just to go to the Prime Minister and feed them grapes in a massive mask? (laughs) Anyway. um, And Spencer and Baldock being agents of disorder and violence. um, Even if they did show up as, um, you know, just two-bit... aids i guess to the niece which is you know i was kind of hoping one of them had a crush on the the niece and they would he would be like you're not going to be happy with him clearly please you know run away with me but no no act four mortimer remember mortimer He's escaped from the tower. I should have mentioned he was imprisoned in the last chapter. In the last act, Mortimer has escaped from the Tower of London, ready to become an adulterous power couple with the Queen. The Queen can get no help from her brother, the King of France, but she gets enough military aid from Sir John of Hinault. I think that's how you pronounce it, Sir John of Hinault. The Queen and Mortimer together fight and defeat King Edward. Edward and Spencer and Baldock hide out in an abbey before being discovered and sent to their fate. Spencer and Baldock are executed. Edward is sent to be imprisoned. And in the next act, he'll get that very, very intimate punishment. Thanks for that little extra detail. You wanted to... You, no, maybe he can get out of this. Maybe he can be free. I was hoping for my ears to be free with nothing else, but a Hey, hey. Act 4 is surprisingly long and also surprisingly cut up. In what sense cut up? Well, I just feel... Um, act, uh, scene 4 and 5 could have just been the same scene um but i guess that's just more of a they are in a different spot it's 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 i'm sure it's just um uh playwright shenanigans that is correct to do i'm just not privy to the reasons um yeah also act four is long and not long at the same time, I feel like Act One was the longest one of the acts. So you mean like it's paced a bit slowly? Yeah. Yeah. Also, I feel like Act, uh, I don't know, it's just like I feel like a lot more happens in Act Four um, in terms of plot de- development. Like, um, Kent goes to France, Queen has no friends in France, and then they come back. Um, in scene three, Edward is unhappy that any that practically all of the traitors have returned. First, they escaped from the tower, and now they're back in in England after their quick stay in France. Um, in scene four, the queen does a really 
cool um, speech, actually. Um, a really cool speech. And then Mortimer says, no, no, calm down, dear. Let me finish this. Yeah, I did not like that at all. Um, I, I would say that perhaps there is a... I mean, it is sexist. Let's not, let's not try to say that Christopher Marlowe, a man from the Renaissance, uh, what was not sexist. I will say that perhaps we can find something else in him doing this. So let me find the speech. It's, uh... So she says, now... So the Queen is talking to lots of people who are going to go off and fight uh, England. He says, now, lords... Our loving friends and countrymen, welcome to England, all with prosperous winds, our kindest friends in Belgia we have left to cope with friends at home, a heavy case when force to forces knit and sword and glaive and civil broils makes kin and countrymen slaughter themselves and others and their sides with their own weapons gored. But what's the help? Misgoverned kings are cause of all this rack, and Edward, thou art one among them all, whose looseness hath betrayed thy land to spoil, and made the channels overflow with blood of thine own people. Patron thou shouldst be, but thou... Okay, so here she is giving the moral argument. She is, call... she is calling him king. She's calling him a misgoverned king, and she is saying, no, you are a bad king. We are going to defeat you because you are a bad, immoral king. But Mortimer... Mortimer bring, says, no, no, we, we can't just have the moral argument. We need to have a legal argument because, you know, you can't just go against the king. He says, nay, madam, if you be a warrior, yet must not grow so passionate in speeches. Lords, sith that we are by sufferance of heaven, arrived and armoured in this prince's right, here for our country's cause were we to him. So this prince, she's pointing to Prince Edward. Uh, and here for our country's cause... Swear we to him all homage, fealty, and forwardness, and for the open wrongs and injuries Edward hath done to us, his queen, and land, we come in arms to wreck it with the sword, that England's queen in peace may repossess her dignities, honours, and withal we may remove these flatterers from the king that havocs England's wealth and treasury. So he is there, so he's saying that, dear, dear, I know. Yes, what you're saying is right. However, we must remember the legal and polite way to put this. It is that we are doing this for your son, who is the legal prince. We are doing this for you so that you may repossess everything you rightfully and legally own. And we are not attacking the king. We are removing flatterers away from the king. So, you know, at this stage, as, as I, in the previous act, I was saying that, you know, he, they are trying to pretend that they have power over when the violence stops. They are trying to pretend that this is a legal and reasonable thing to do at the moment. Yeah, and uh, I feel like this is a big cop-out by um, Mortimer, because um, he's been doing this since Act 2, or even in Act 1, really, um, when he's like, it's we exiled Gaveston by law, and he should not be back by law. In Act 2, he's like, all right, we're going to um, sign this big-ass paper and re-exile Gaveston, and that it's not treason because this is lawful. We are going against the king's wishes, sure, but it's a lawful backing off. Um, and they, he doesn't really do that for bringing Gas Gaveston back for the for Isabel, 
but um, he's always used the law as a shield to do what he wanted to do. And if Edward II made it very easy for him throughout because he's just being a, a dumb little boy, dumb little man-child. He's, Edward II made it especially easy for Mortimer to have sex with his wife. I mean, he really did, though. Yeah, suspicious <laughs> husbands make the best cuckolds. Ah. I would say that uh, we, well, I, in my summary, I said they are now an adulterous power couple. I, I would say that it's unclear at this point how far Isabella, Queen Isabella, and Mortimer's relationship is. Are they merely allies at this point, or are they explicitly in a relationship now? I think they're probably in a relationship now just because he is comfortable to with saying, um, actually, let's let's um don't don't say it that way. You're getting too hot, darling. Uh we let's not be hysterical about this. I feel like um uh Mortimer's position would not he would not be doing that if it wasn't stable enough and in terms of position he's a baron or at least he's like you know one of a lower ranking person so he really shouldn't be doing that unless you know they were boinking how do you how do you view the the uh, i'd say for marlo like i i will say i will agree with you that marlo is perhaps not the most subtle with the characterization usually a character is what they are and they are that throughout the play and the play is merely tracking the consequences of them being what they are and doing what they always would have done i think however that the relationship of mortimer to the queen this is quite subtly and gradually built up where at the beginning the queen is oh no please don't say that i'm in love with him i love you my king and she does seem to love edward quite deeply and then just gradually, as the play goes on, she slowly moves towards them. It is, she does begin as being the good wife, the good, long-suffering wife. And then we have her slowly falling in love with Mortimer. So I did find it to be subtly and rather nicely done, how she slowly, only slowly, moves into being in love with Mortimer. Oh yeah, no, that's this is that part is probably the most realistic. Um and I, I uh, okay, they're all technically realistic because I can see people being dumb. Not quite as dumb as this, but still dumb. And um Isabel being rejected by the king and her just finding refuge in Mortimer is a very natural progression and yeah 10 out of 10 on that um and it makes the betrayal it's not not much of a betrayal because she's she's the one been betrayed first it's he he got what was coming to him frankly at least as far as the um you know being very exceptionally cruel to isabel was concerned the the afterwards is the problem for me. How aware was she about Edward's sentencing? Let's say she knew nothing about the... I think she, by the end of it, 
Like in this play, perhaps typically for a female character in these things, she has agency just enough to put herself under another man. So at the end of the play, in Act 5, she does seem to be more than willing just to go along with whatever uh, Mortimer tells her to do. Uh, Maybe this can change depending on which production you see. Maybe she says the lines with a bit more, oh no, what have I gotten myself into sort of thing. But by the end of it, it does feel like if Mortimer says let's have the king killed, she'll go, okay. And I think actually maybe she does do that. Well, maybe I'll know more in Act 5, but I think that she is fairly on board with the killing of the king in Act 5. I think she almost sees it as um, an unfortunate choice that has to be made. Yeah, just a lot happens in a very short time compared to Act 1, first of all. Um we get a off off screen prison break where Mortimer says, "Oh, I drugged the guards and I broke out of prison." Let's not dwell on that. Let's go on. Yeah, let's just let's just keep going. Um, and uh, the sun is there as well. Like um, at Act Four, Scene One, um, Kent goes to France. Kent's like, "Ah, my my brother is an idiot. He continues to be an idiot even without Gaveston, and I just need to make sure the Queen and the sun is okay because." My brother is not, and the future is the sun, so I, I need to go check. And in scene two, Queen's like, oh, I have no friends. We have no friends. What are we going to do? And the son is like, we, let's go home. Maybe dad won't be too upset. And Isabel's like, no, he's going to be upset, Sonny. Um, which I find very funny. Um, and even in, I do, okay, I will have to touch a little bit on act Five, um, because of the sun, this she does. Isabel probably doesn't want her son to think badly of her, and for that to continue, she can't treat um, her husband badly, or at the very least, she can't really have him killed for anything. He kind of needs to stay alive, or else the son will be sad, and. Um, eventually the prince turned king might have her killed for the dad's death. So I feel like she, despite being in love with Mortimer, she has enough self-preservation in her head to go, let's not kill him. My son might kill me if I do. Do we want to talk about how Edward is when he's locked up in the abbey? This is very... You know, we have the most recent play we did was Richard II. And I do feel that Shakespeare was referring to this section of Edward II as he was writing Edward II, this sort of self-pitying king who, you know, he is at his lowest point and now he's... It is almost the let's tell sad stories of the death of kings moment where Edward says... He's with Spencer and Baldock. He's in an abbey and he's saying to the abbot, he's saying, Father, thy face should harbour no deceit, or hadst thou ever been a king, thy heart pierced deeply with sense of my distress, could not but take compassion of my state, stately and proud in riches and in train, while on I was powerful and full of pomp. But what is he whom rule and empery have not in life or death made miserable? 
Come, Spencer, come, Balder, come sit down by me. Make trial now of that philosophy that in our famous nurseries of art thou suck'st from Plato and from Aristotle. Father, this life contemplative is heaven. Oh, that I might this life in quiet lead. But we, alas, are chaste, and you, my friends, your lives in my dishonour they pursue. Yet, gentle monks, for treasure, gold, nor fee, do you betray us and our company. So he, he is at, you know, at that stage where he's saying, oh, I wish I could just be, uh, have a contemplative life where I wasn't king again. Uh, which, as you say in the previous chapters, was, uh, he's probably not that serious about it. He probably never considered it that seriously. Yeah. And um, I I know that we did we are doing this play specifically because of Richard the Second. Um, it's very much, you know, two kings both um, doing dumb shit for giggles, um, and because they're king and they can't be stopped. Um, and one is a little bit more political in their choices, rather than just self-serving um, gluttony of the senses and yay homo. Um, and they both um, have their, oh no, what have I done? I am, I am deposed and they are very sad about it. Um, I feel like act five scene one is more like um, Richard II's, I am, actually no, Richard II also had, um, a wait, I have to give up my crown kind of moment. Um, yes, the famous scene where this crown is the it's, I remember there was a long metaphor about I am pouring water into your bucket or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, in Act Five, it, there's something like that happens as well. Um, so it's probably because having read Shakespeare is very psychologically or you know, um motivated people doing dumb stuff because they plan out why they want to do it. Um, it just makes this play in comparison just makes me go, you, none of you are, none of you are clever. None of you are even thinking about strategizing the rest of your lives. What are you doing? Please, no wonder you're all dead. It's um, like watching the 1980s The Thing. And then going back to watch the 1950s, the thing from the other world. <sighs> Act five. With the queen and prince firmly in his pocket, Mortimer's first bit of business is forcing the king to give over his crown to the prince. And therefore, Mortimer will become Lord Protector, which means that effectively he is regent in charge of the country. It's never enough to lock an old king up in prison while you bet his wife. You have to have him killed as well. Because, you know, maybe some people will rally around him and try to support him, so get him out of the way. Mortimer hires an assassin called Lightborn. Lightborn, like Lucifer, get it? Lightborn kills 
Edward by stabbing a red hot poker up Edward's where the sun don't shine. <laughs> That's the part we all remember from this play. The young King Ed the young King Edward the Third realizes that Mortimer is a bit of a wrongin and has Mortimer executed and has his own mother, the Queen, imprisoned in the tower. Happy ending. Happily ever after. Do you think that anything bad would happen after this? I don't know my history, so I'm just gonna say probably. Like, a lot of bad things happen in history, so I just, I just assume that it happens to every single one of the kings eventually. How, how much time, how, how much lead-up should we give to the uh, Red Hot Poker scene? I mean... Shall we get oh, it out of the way? Uh, yes, you're fine. Uh, uh, Lightborn says, I know what I must do. Get you away. Yet be not far off. I shall need your help. See that in the next room I have a fire. And get me a spit. And let it be red hot. So the audience who knows the historical story are going, Oh, oh, oh something's going to go on here. <laughs> eh. It's like if you're watching something about the... Um, the Kennedy assassination, you hear, oh, I'm going to go up to the uh, Texas Book Depository. Oh, and there's a grassy knoll I must be t checking on. <laughs> Christ. Uh, I will say um, that in my edition, I mean, we've been, uh, we've been talking about, oh, he gets a red-hot poker stuck up him. In my edition, it's a bit vague, um, so, for instance, so I'll read out everything that happens in my edition. So we have Edward tries to escape, but Lightborn says, run for the table. And Edward says, oh, spare me or dispatch me in a trice. Then bracket stage direction. Matravis and Gurney bring in a table and a red hot spit. Lightborn. So lay the table down and stamp on it, but not too hard, lest that you bruise his body. Bracket stage direction. Edward dies. At no point, and, you know, the stage directions, those are in brackets. So that means that there's even less information about what happens here. So in my edition, at least, it is never actually said that he gets where that red hot poker goes. It's not even said that the red hot poker is used on him. It just implied that he does die. So... Yeah, I even assume... on mine, um, it's Intermatriverse Gurney and Exwent. Return with table. They don't even... Does he have the poker on him all the time? Because he doesn't return with the poker either. Um, I assume the idea is that in, in the previous part, he's saying to them, in that other room, prepare a fire in a poker. And so they have to bring it to him at some point. Yeah, but with the stage directions, just says return with table. And then Lightboard, so lay the table down and stamp on it, but not too hard, least that you bruise his body. King dies. Like, that's it. Um, this could be uh, one of those things where, you know, this is polite literature. You can't just say stage direction, shove the poker up his ass. That's, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. I mean, technically, no one is meant to see the... Um, Stage directions, except yeah, you you do need the mise en scene. You do need the the king fate. You don't want the audience to have a clear view of what's happening because obviously on stage, 
I mean, special effects. You can't do that. <laughs> as um, as hilariously horrifying as that would be. Um, yeah, no. Um, and but more than that, what's really sad, I guess, um, for me and the king's treatment is that he's in terrible conditions. Because usually if, you know, royalty is um, placed in house arrest for, you know, the rest of their lives, they're usually just in a nice room of one of their castles and, they just, and they're just there in, in quarantine for until they die. But um, uh, Mortimer specifically said to everyone, we will keep him moving so he is that much harder to rescue. Um, he won't be able to do anything and himself. And as you, yeah, so that usually they, for these noble prisoners, they try to uh, prison them in luxury. In this one, no, though they need to humiliate him. Where Mortimer gets these two arseholes called Metrovis and something or other. And when they get to him first off, they 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 force his face down into puddle water. They baptize him or they give him the anointing, but with, you know, dirty puddle water. So it's not enough to kill him. It's not enough to get him out of the way. They have to humiliate him right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I suspect that he's either blind or, um, you know, blindfolded because the way he speaks and the way the lines were um, delivered in the audiobook. Uh, it makes him sound very feeble, and and Lightborn is such a such a cruel person. Um, so Edward, um, and there in Maya and Puddle, I have have I stood this ten days space and least that I should sleep. One plays continually upon a drum. They give me bread and water being a king, so that for want of sleep and sustenance, my mind's distempered and my body's numbed, and whether I have no and whether I have limbs or no, I know not. Oh would my blood dropped out from every vein as doth this water from my tattered robes. Tell Isabel, the queen, I looked not thus, when for her sake I ran at tilt in France, and there unhorsed the Duke of Clermont. And so yeah, no, he's been in puddles, he's given bread and water, but it's terrible stuff, not, nowhere near worthy of king. And he's become so emaciated that Isabel would not be able to recognize him when he was, you know, still young and gallant and um, could unhorse a duke. And Lightborn, as a response, is like, oh, speak no more, my lord, this breaks my heart. Lie on this bed and rest yourself a while. Um, and Edward... These looks of thine can harbour naught but death. I see my tragedy written in thy brows. Yet stay a while, forbear thy bloody hand, and let me see the stroke before it comes, that even then, when I shall lose my life, my mind may be more steadfast on my God. What means your highness to mistrust me thus? What means thou to dissemble with me thus? These hands were never stained with innocent blood, nor shall they now be tainted with a king's. Oh, forgive my thought, for having such a thought, one jewel have I left. Receive thou this. Still fear I and I know not what the cause, but every joint shakes as I give it thee. 
Oh, if thou harborest murder in thy heart, let this gift change thy mind and save my save thy soul. Know that I am a king. Oh, at that name, I feel a hell of grief. Where is my crown? Gone, gone, and do I remain alive? You're hey. overwatched, my overwatch. Oh, yeah. it was even popular back then. You're <laughs> overwatched, my lord. Lie down and rest. So, yes, it is. Lightborn, I will admit that Lightborn is playing with his prey. I will admit, for my taste, I prefer it if Lightborn started doing those, you know, James Bond. I will subtly say that I'm going to kill you, but what I'm saying seems like a lie. Seems like I'm saying I'm not going to kill you, but actually, if you read one level deep in them, I am saying I'm going to kill you. No, in this one, Lightborn is just lying. He's just saying, oh, why do you distrust me? I'd never hurt you, sir. Oh my god. Well, like technically he might not actually be lying when he's specifically saying no innocent blood has been spilled. Um so maybe he Or oh, oh, yes, and also like... when he says never tainted by a king's blood. Well, Edward has ah. already given over. Yeah, the crown. Prince. Yeah, the crown's already been um given over, so he is no king. Therefore, he ain't going to kill a king, isn't he now? Mm. Mm. At least that's how I took it. This, I will say, you know, as you would expect in a play like this, the king is allowed some level of dignity. Like, you know, Master of this does say that he is resilient. He says he hath a body able to endure more than we can inflict. And therefore now let us assail his mind another while. So they're saying, you know, he does have some level of cojones. He is able to take what we're dishing out. Ooh. And there is a part where it is, oh, so he is learning now how he is. He is now forced to give up the crown. And Edward says, "Oh, would I might, but heavens and earth conspire to make me miserable. Here, receive my crown. Receive it. No, these innocent hands of mine shall not be guilty of so foul a crime. He of you all that most desires my blood and will be called the murderer of a king, take it. What are you moved? Pity you me? Then send for unrelenting Mortimer and Isabel, whose eyes being turned to steel will sooner sparkle fire than shed a tear. Yet stay, for rather than I will look on them. Here, here, he gives up the crown. Now, sweet God of heaven, make me despise this transitory pomp, and sit for I enthronized in heaven. Come death, and with thy fingers close my eyes. Or if I live, let me forget myself. Then he says, Call me not, Lord, away out of my sight, or pardon me. Grief makes me a lunatic. Let not that Mortimer protect my son. More safety is there in a tiger's jaws than his embracements. So we have here, he's given some dignity in near his death. He is allowed to fight back against them. He's saying, no, this is my right. And he is allowed to have the Christian ability to set the world at naught just before his death, saying, no, let me put aside the transitory pomp and wait to be king in heaven. He is allowed to, you know, say that I don't care about my life, but let me tell you, Make my son safe. Don't put him anywhere near Mortimer. Marlowe is giving him some dignity. Shall we talk about um, the ending of this play? The very ending where the King Edward III 
throws off the regency of Mortimer. Does this feel a bit like a deus ex machina? Oh, the evil Mortimer. How, what's going to happen? He has full control over Prince Edward. Oh no, Prince Edward says, no, Mortimer, off to execution with you. Yes and no, because I don't know how old this boy is, but um, like throughout the plane when he does show up and when he does speak, he sounds pretty level-headed and just generally a lot more mature than his dear old dead dad. Because um, when he first shows up, uh, King says, do this, son. And he's like, oh, I don't know, I'm young, but uh, and you're, you're putting a lot on my shoulders, but I'll do my best. Or at least that was how I read it. And then in France, uh, when his mum is like, oh, what are we going to do? We have no friends. He can be. He was like, "Oh, we we could go home. Um, Dad should look um look after us. We are still his family, and we haven't done anything wrong, really." Um, and so, on the one hand, it does feel like a very quick death of Mortimer, just being knocked out of the park so quickly. It's like, oh, I thought I was going to be on top, but turns out my we is uh facing the ground and i'm dead whoopsies um so i can see it the boy doing this quite comfortably it, i feel like it's within character but i am very surprised that it just happened immediately as soon as um edward the second is dead yes he says uh ah. so mortimus so edward the third comes in villain Mortimer says, how now, my lord? He's like, think not that I am frighted with thy words. My father's murdered through thy treachery, and thou shalt die, and on his mournful hearse thy hateful and accursed head shall lie, to witness to the world that by thy means his kingly body was too soon interred. And then later on, it's like, the queen says, for my sake, sweet son, pity Mortimer. And Mortimer, he's not going to compromise, just like King Edward II. Uh, like, I, I do feel that by the end of it, it's sort of like, you know, the new boss, just as bad as the old boss. We have Mortimer, you know, just like how Gaveston overreached his station. And so that King Edward was doing lots of bad things. Uh, we have here Mortimer has overreached his station and in a deviant sexual relationship with the Queen is causing bad things to happen in the country. It's like the revolution just leads to the same old uh, deviant sex crimes up in the top part of the country, which also means bad politics up in the top of the country. I'm sure that there's a more eloquent way of putting that, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> But the Queen says, for my sake, son, pity Mortimer. And Mortimer says, Madame, entreat not, I will rather die than sue for life unto a paltry boy. So this is the kind of stubbornness that Edward II has, where he's asserting that, no, I shouldn't have to compromise with anyone. I deserve, I, I, I can say what I like to this. So, and then Edward III says, hence with the traitor, away with the murderer. So, yes, this is, at the end... Edward III just stands up and says, no, I'm in charge. Get rid of Mortimer. Um, for Mortimer, Mortimer, at least I can say he stays true to himself. Because um, he he does, when the Queen's like, no, wait, don't, don't kill Mortimer. And Mortimer's like, I ain't going to beg from a boy. Um, which is a hot thing to say, considering uh, he divine right to straight up execute you as soon as he likes and i feel like just throughout the whole play mortimer had a very much 
that energy of I will not be told what to do. I'm the one that's telling people what to do. Um, the ego, the audacity. Um, and I think even in even in Act Five, Scene Two, um, he is so so proud of his achievements in the worst possible way. Um, uh, he says something about a wheel. Why am I looking at this on my phone? When so I it's at the very last, sort of the very last scene where he says, base fortune. So Mortimer says, base fortune. Now I see that in thy wheel, there is a point to which when men aspire, they tumble headlong down. That point I touched and seeing there was no place to mount up higher, why should I grieve at my declining fall? Yeah, and um, he mentions a wheel at um, scene two as well. As thou intendest to rise by Mortimer, who now makes fortune's wheel turn as he please, seek all the means thou canst to make him droop, and neither give him kind word nor look nor good look. And um, so, yeah, he feels like he's in the driver's seat, and then three scenes later, he's like, oh, no, I'm under the... I am under the tires. I am being crushed. Whoopsies. Yeah, it's a very quick turnover. And just the Ew. ending, I will say that, you know, that I, I made a half facetious thing in the summary where I was saying, oh, happy ending. Edward has Mortimer killed and now his mother is imprisoned. You know, you could read this as being a sort of subtle complicating of the happy ending where we have Edward III, this perhaps minor, maybe minor, maybe just in adulthood, coming up and his first act as king is imprisoning his own mother. This could bode badly for his rule. This could say that we're not entirely free from the rule of bad kings when we have a king, you know, go, you know, yes, his mother maybe has committed some crimes, but, you know, this isn't a good look, imprisoning your own mother. Yeah. I mean, or does she... Or is it... We are certain it's imprisonment, right? Because she does exit by saying, then come sweet death and rid me of this grief. And I know that the king said... You know, away with her, her words enforce these tears, and I shall pity her if she speak again. Um, and she's begging for death. Perhaps it's uh, he's waiting to kill her until he knows whether or not she had some role in the King Edward's death. So it's like the Queen says, as thou, so Queen says, as thou receivest thy life from me, spill not the blood of gentle Mortimer. Edward III says, this argues that you spilt my father's blood, else you would not entreat for Mortimer. I? Spill his blood? No. Aye, madam, you, for so the rumour runs. That rumour is untrue for loving thee. Is this report raised on poor Isabel? And then Edward III says, I do not think her so unnatural. So he suspects her, but he's saying, I don't think she's that unnatural, so evil. And then Edward III says, Mother, you are suspected for his death. And therefore we commit you to the tower till further trial may be made thereof. If you be guilty, though I be your son, think not to find me slack or pitiful. So he's saying, look, until we have more evidence, I might have you killed, Mother. 
if it turns out you did have a role in my father's death. But then she also goes, nay to my death, for too long have I lived when as my bridge my days. So she's saying, I'd rather die yes. than have my son consider killing me off. Which, uh, oxymoronic, but I, I get the sentiment. It, it's so, you know, I'd rather die if my son doesn't trust me enough to believe my word. If, she, if he has to um, do the extra thinking and researching. It's which, like, even if you suspect me, it's like, you know, to the top, you see, he says, to the top, I was like, no, to my death right away. I don't care. I won't wait for you to kill me. Kill me right now if you distrust me this much. I mean, I feel like she's saying that more with uh, hurt rather than yes. defiant. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. Um, yeah, and Isabel just continues being a pitiful woman character throughout the play. I me. That was Edward the <laughs> Second. So usually at the end of this, we go around the panel and we say, Sophie, what was your least favourite part about this play? Uh, the least favourite part about this play that I have is probably not its fault. I think it's the whole product of its time um, issue where, or maybe I just don't like Christopher Marlowe's writing style in general, where his characters just go on a monorail and go the path that they are just destined to go and they aren't human enough to even consider straying from it um or even if they try yeah this is generally lack of psychology more paper play morality play two-dimensional aspect of the whole thing that just makes me go you are all idiots <laughs> everyone is dumb so yeah um i don't that it's i'm not sure if it's the writing style that i dislike or everyone is stupid dislike but yeah that's it's the vibe i hate the vibe i'm very coherent what i liked and perhaps the listener won't quite know why I dislike this, but I haven't mentioned it before. And the reason why I haven't mentioned it before is because the thing I dislike is the lots of unnecessary laws. Uh, you'll have this in Shakespeare's history plays too. You'll have lots of lords all around the place. And they don't really add much to it, having all of these separate proper nouns all over the place. And so... I just did not mention them in this entire thing. There are plenty of characters that gum up the works of this play that I, for your sake, listener, did not mention. There's one thing being historically accurate, but I feel that a lot of these lords could have just been glossed over with Lord 1, Lord 2, Lord 3. Yeah, no, I agree with you. There's the usual stuff. There's the usual names. Warwick, um, I'm pretty sure... Yeah, Gloucester. I'm not. I don't think Gaunt was in here this time, but the very expectable names just kept cropping up. It's like, oh, I know your family name. You show um, historical plays, and uh, it was very strictly unnecessary because the main antagonist really was uh, Mortimer. 
he didn't really need anyone else. I suppose he needed Kent because it was the he was the uncle brother to the king. But you know, yeah. And now for what you liked about the play. I did like a few monologues. Um Isabella's um war speech was actually pretty good. Um a good chunk of Edward um in Act Five was actually pretty good. Um how he laments his crown, um, how he l laments himself. Uh yeah, his lamentations were pretty good in general. Um there's generally a few lines that just make me go okay no that was quite cute like you know unnatural wars um unnatural desires uh but yeah they were not frequent enough to save this play in my mind anyway and what i liked was probably the basic thing it is just how gay this play is <laughs> <laughs> It is, it's like, you know, you, you hear, I have previously said that, oh, I think that Shakespeare genuinely wrote one of the first lesbians in English literature. Uh, in that play that I was referring to, The Two Noble Kinsmen, that is very much subtext that you need to do some work to get to. Maybe an acceptable amount of work, but some work. In this one, no. This, this is gay. This, they are obviously gay. Anyone who denies they are gay is plainly just trying to be willfully obtuse. Gaveston and Edward II, they are in a gay relationship. There is no question about that. No question at all. If in, Genuinely, if anyone uh, read this play and said they can't be gay, uh, I would be like, are you an idiot? Are you as dumb as the people inside this play? Or... Why are you being so bad faith about this interpretation? Like it's, it's not subtext. It's it's <laughs> like watching a lesbian sex scene and going, oh, what lovely friends. <laughs> Harold, they're lesbians. Carl. I was not referencing that, but thanks for aging yourself, Sophie. <laughs> I know I'm old. It's fine. That was Edward the Second, and you know we have some fun here on this podcast. We're not going to go straight back to Shakespeare. We're going to do something a little bit unexpected. Sophie, do you know what I'm going to suggest now? I am afraid to. Uh, we're not going to watch um, Mecca Juliet, are we? Romy, we're not going to watch. No, what we're going to do is Osamu Tezuka. You know Astro Boy? The guy who made Astro Boy, Osamu Tezuka. For some reason, he did a respectable number of adaptations of works of dark Western literature. And one of those works was The Merchant of Venice. We next month we are going to do Osamu Tezuka's Venice no Shonin, The Merchant of Venice by Osamu Tezuka. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pal, 
a list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from museopen.org. Thank you for listening.